Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Ashvin Chabra, the President and Chief Investment Officer of Euclidean Capital, the family office for Jim Simons of Renaissance Technologies. Ashman joined Euclidean in 2015 after spending time as CIO of the Institute for Advanced Study and CIO of Merrill Lynch Wealth Management. He's the author of The Aspirational Investor and is recognized as one of the founders of Goals-Based Wealth Management. Our conversation covers Ashman's upbringing and his path from physics to investing. We discuss his Beyond Markowitz portfolio management framework, application of it to high net worth individuals, foundations, the Yale Endowment, Warren Buffett, and a single family office. Along the way, Ashvin shares the story of interviewing with Jim Simons, his critique of endowment management, manager selection, and perspectives on interest rates and Bitcoin. Ashvin is one of the most creative and independent thinkers in the community, and you'll soon hear why. Please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Ashvin Chopra. Ashwin, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Ted. Well, why don't we go back to the beginning? Take me back to your upbringing and go from there. Okay. I think the start had nothing to do with money or finance or investing. There are people you come across where they say right at very early age, they've dabbled in stocks with their grandmom or grandfather. I think for me, it was exactly the opposite. I knew exactly what I wanted to do as a kid, and that was become a physicist. 
<laughs> so how in the world do you know you want to become a physicist when you're a kid? I didn't know. I had a good friend whose father had a PhD in physics and worked at the National Physical Laboratory in India. And so I think I got introduced to the books by Asimov and I just knew I wanted to be a physicist. And obviously Einstein was writ larger than life. I remember reading as a kid about how Einstein was working on relativity and he sort of imagined himself sitting on a light wave and how the world would look that way as opposed to just sitting on the earth. And for some reason, it burned something in my brain. And I said, that's really interesting. There are two points of view in life. One, the way you see it. And one, if you're not a human, how would you see it? And in that sense, that duality has actually stuck to me. And you'd be amazed how useful it is in investing. So you start studying physics. And why don't you take me through where that brought you? So the second thing that you have to understand is I wasn't very good at school. It sounds a little <laughs> weird given that I have reasonable academic qualifications. But I guess now you would say that one was differently abled in learning. I just had a really hard time. I'd sit in the class and get spewed masses of information. You're supposed to memorize them and then regurgitate them in three hours. And it was a disaster. The one thing I was pretty good at was playing chess. My father introduced me to chess and he and I would play every weekend for fun. And that sort of made it clear that at least I had some brains. <laughs> when I graduated from school, I entered the state junior championships and tied for the first four places. And that actually got me into the best college. So in some sense, chess got me into the best college, St. Stephen's, and I did physics there and I captained the chess team. Happy to note we won the intercollegiate championship, <laughs> just as a note. But I did physics at Stevens in Delhi, and then I got a scholarship, and I went and did graduate work first at the University of Georgia in Athens, where I got lucky and I worked with a very distinguished person, David Landau, who was a pioneer in Monte Carlo simulations. And so I did my master's thesis with him, and then I did my PhD at Yale in chaos theory, where I got to work with some more distinguished people, Benoit Mandelbrot, who really was the father of fractals, K.R. Srinivasan, who's like one of the major figures in turbulence. And then eventually in Chicago, I worked with Leo Kadanoff in condensed matter and Mitchell Feigenbaum in chaos theory. So I actually had a wonderful physics career where I got to see some of the best in their respective fields around this area of complex systems, dynamical systems, chaos theory, and Monte Carlo. So what brought you to leaving physics your childhood dream? Physics is a tough field. You're always doubting yourself. So Fisher Black had done some interesting work. He had solved the heat diffusion equation. It was sort of a trivial piece of math almost from a physics point of view. And so I think every physicist thought they could make a fundamental contribution in finance thereafter. So I read this book. It was by John Hull on Black-Scholes and options, derivatives, it was the standard book at that point. I bought a suit from Macy's <laughs> and I went and interviewed at First Chicago. I interviewed from, I think, nine to one. They said, where else have you interviewed? I said, nope, it's my first job, first in job interview. And they said, okay. And then they called the recruiter and they said, ask him to stand by the phone at five. And by five, I had a very nice job on, well, not on Wall Street, but in Chicago. So I basically went back and I said, could you give me a visiting position at Chicago in case this thing doesn't work out? I'm going to try finance for a year. And I walked into the fixed income derivatives trading floor. What was that first year, that transition like for you? I think it's a growing experience. I think people who are very, very deep in academia may not have a grasp on the real world or how it works. And within three months, actually, of being what we'd call a quant. They were very good to me. They said, you want to be a trader eventually. Quants are supporting traders. We could give you a trading book, in, like a small trading book, and you can start taking some risk. It was quite an honor because I was very green. And I looked at the whole situation and I said, no, I don't want to do that. And they said, why? I said, because the traders have a free option on the firm capital. And so you're just going to induce me to take a lot of risk. And if it works out well, I'll make a lot of money. If it blows up, there was something wrong with that whole structure. And so I just stayed away from it. 
And so eventually I moved away from the trading floors because I didn't have the risk return mentality that that ecosystem needed and flourished and lived by. All right, we're going to have to come back to that seminal insight because it's so pervasive across the investment landscape. So where did you go from there off the trading desk? Eventually, I ended up at JP Morgan in the asset management division. And around 99, there was something very interesting going on in the world. And it was the early stages of the internet. This was causing seismic changes in the entire industry. And I believe, if I have my facts right, that the market value of Schwab exceeded the market value of J.P. Morgan. And Morgan, in some sense, was in an existential crisis, especially the private bank, because this was the old J.P. Morgan private bank. You came to J.P. Morgan, they didn't come to you. And they had a few great offices for very wealthy people. And now suddenly, all of these internet millionaires were being minted by the day. You had to find a way to service them, and the market was discounting traditional banks and providing tremendous valuations to the new entrants. So J.P. Morgan went in and said, what is it that we can do to like reinvent ourselves? And they looked at that in each division, and the private bank came back and said, we can provide financial advice in a scalable way using machines and the internet. Today, people call it robo-advisor, but that's not a great name for it because it's really not a question of robo-advisor. It's a question of can people plus machines plus some form of AI or rules create a scalable, cost-efficient way of providing differentiated service all over the world? So this is 99, 2000. And so, again, JP Morgan was a very special place. When they had a new initiative, they didn't hire people from outside. They said, we already have the best people inside. So they created what they call the crack team to do this. And so I got involved in building one of the first robo-advisors in the world, Morgan Online. And that was very exciting. And that timing seems auspicious, starting down in 99, knowing, well, knowing, looking back, that you only had about a year before it all rolled over. Yes. In fact, when I look back in my career, that was an amazing year. We had a fair amount of money that had been granted to us. So we actually set up a shop next to MIT because the feeling was that you couldn't create something as large and as transformative within the company. You almost had to go outside the company and create a completely different atmosphere to attract the best talent and move as quickly as possible. I believe their only fear at that point was that Goldman Sachs was ahead of them and Goldman Sachs was either going to launch first or they were going to launch first. So if you look at the landscape, it's almost funny when you think about what was motivating. It was interesting because when I look back at my philosophy and at least some of my contributions to the field of investing, a lot of them came that year. The first thing that I did was I looked at the computer and I said, how should a computer provide advice or how should this human computer interface happen? And in those days, it was very straightforward, especially at the retail level. You had equities, you had bonds, you had cash. You had a rate of return that was expected of equities, a rate of return that was expected of bonds. You did a retirement analysis. And if you weren't making it to retirement, you basically increased the amount of equity so you could get a higher <laughs> rate of return. And I looked at this and I said, how would a computer interact with a person? I said, well, first question you should ask is, what is the purpose of money? What is this money for? What is your goal? And from there came the genesis of goals-based investing, which is really now quite popular. And I think most people now, when you go in, you list your goals. So I think that that was one piece that was transformational. The other interesting thing was I'd done my master's in Monte Carlo, as I mentioned to you. And I thought, well, the probability of reaching your goals, well, Monte Carlo is how you do this. You do thousands of simulations and you see which simulations are great. And we had these long debates with counterparties who said, you cannot introduce the word Monte Carlo in the world of investing. People are going to think this is gambling. <laughs> so I think there's a piece of history of 99, 2000. And of course, I don't think people anticipated how quickly all of this would change. So I want to pull a couple of threads you mentioned. You mentioned setting under Fisher Black. You mentioned Markowitz and Fish and Frontier type analysis, and then goals-based investing. The latter two don't really 
fit together. I know you wrote this very well-regarded paper called Beyond Markowitz, which distilled this goals-based framework. And why don't you talk through a little bit, either that paper or just generally taking the goals-based approach, like how did you articulate how you're going to deliver that goals-based approach? That's actually quite a complex question. So let me first express the problem as it is. The problem is that individuals and institutions have certain goals, and some of those goals are essential that are non-negotiable, and then some are aspirational or that you'd like to do. Now, when you think of the Markowitz structure of the markets, it almost implies that there's a very definite and stable structure of markets. You have expected returns, you have expected volatility, you have expected correlations, and then you're transformed into an optimization problem. That's a well-posed problem. You know how to solve it. It completely misses the point that markets are this crazy beast that are totally uncertain because they're really a product of social activity. And over long periods of time, any social activity has huge variations. Now, I'd also mentioned that I'd done my PhD in chaos theory. And one of the people I'd interacted very closely with was Benoit Mandelbrot who had written a very famous paper on the price of cotton, on the structure of cotton prices. And technically, it's that the Hurst exponent is not 0.5. So you're not talking about stable distributions. You're talking about these massive fluctuations. So he had pointed out that you should think about the fluctuation of markets the way you think about the fluctuations of rivers. You, know, you get floods and you can build a dam, but every... 10 or 15 or 20 years, you're going to get this massive flood. Kutner, I think, reviewed Mandelbrot's paper at that point and said, Mandelbrot, if you are correct, then all of our models are wrong and we're going to have to throw them in the trash can. Well, of course, as history would have it, nobody threw their models in the trash can. <laughs> they just pretended the markets are stable. So I had been deeply influenced by the idea that markets are completely unstable and especially during a human lifetime, and that one must prepare for those events. And so you think about how can you prepare for those events? And modern portfolio theory does this part of the way. If you think of the essence of modern portfolio theory, there's a riskless asset, that's cash. There's a risky asset, which is our market portfolio. The real question about modern portfolio theory is how much in cash, how much in the risky asset. Theoretically, there's a utility function, and you can go from there. Now, confession, never took a course in finance, never took a course in economics. I'm looking at it from first principles from somebody who's done chaos theory, nonlinear dynamics, saying there's something missing here. So I ended up actually devising my own framework, and it's not my own framework. I built upon Markowitz. I felt that there was a third piece that was missing, so there are really three parts. There's the middle that we recognize, which is the market, and that's Markowitz. There's the left tail, where the market's going to hell. You need a safety bucket. Well, modern portfolio theory has that. It's called cash, but I generalized it, and I said, think of all kinds of risks that you may have to an individual or an institution. What do you need to hedge against it? So that was my safety bucket. And then what was totally missing from modern portfolio theory was what I ended up calling the aspirational bucket. And what is that? That is the engine of wealth creation. That is where all of wealth gets created. And so I analyzed the Forbes 400. I tried to figure out how wealth gets created. And it was really what I had learned in my interaction with these internet millionaires in 99, 2000. You take human capital, something you're good at, something you're passionate about. You work on it every day. You get better and better. You want to expand that because that's your differentiator. You need to find more capital and you need to find more human capital. You need to find more financial capital and you need leverage. And the best kind of leverage is non-recourse leverage. And you do that over and over, your business gets bigger and bigger. And guess what? At some point, it's 95% of your portfolio and you are wealthy. The little joke I always had when I met very wealthy people where they had 95% of their portfolio, and of course, we were asking them to diversify, was, I'm really glad I never met you 10 years ago. <laughs> because you get the irony of trying to get people to diversify too early. So I wrote this as the paper Beyond Markowitz, which I'm happy to say has really got legs. And 
as you know, the publishers put it together with Keynes and Fisher Black as one of the seminal papers of the industry. And so in that sense, it's a full circle. I will say in the simplest sense, you can think of it, the three buckets, as a put, an index, and a call. The put protects you against a variety of risks. The index exposes you to the market. The calls is a call option on your skill set or what you want to do in life. I'd love to walk through a couple different applications of this. So at the time, where were you sitting and how did you apply it? So as I said, the early work, really, the genesis was the work we did at JP Morgan. By then I had moved to Merrill and I had the thundering herd to work with. And that was a great experience. And I developed, I wrote Beyond Markowitz there and we began to apply it. There was great resonance because in many ways, there was a disconnect between modern portfolio theory and how people really invested. And, you know, this is well known. Even Markowitz doesn't invest as per Markowitz, and nobody really does mean variance optimization. Otherwise, you put all your money in emerging markets. You put constraints. But this was the first time this was a framework where people of all different styles of investing could look at it and say, yeah, I already do that. I do that sort of in my head, or I've never quite formalized it. So I knew that I was onto something good, because I always think the good ideas are sort of obvious in retrospect. The idea that everybody needs a put, an index, a call, is actually the essence of investing. It's also a way of then connecting between things that I want that are certain, and things that I'm willing to have some flexibility on, and how do I connect them with a market that is very uncertain, but is also my best bet for extracting return. So in that seat, you're facing everything from retail to high net worth clients. What's a good example of what someone's portfolio might have looked like putting that framework to work? It really is a tremendous span of examples you can give. But let's start with high net worth individuals, because being in that seat, that's sort of the first one that you're paying attention to at some level. In a, so take a business owner. They've been very successful, and 95% of their portfolio in the past didn't even exist under the Markowitz framework. So they would work with a financial advisor, and the financial advisor would say, you need to take some of the profits that the business is generating and give them to me. And the business owner would look somewhat suspiciously and say, <laughs> what rate of return are you promising? Because I'm making 20, 25, 30% a year compounding. You could offer me 6, 7, 10 and by the way, what are your fees? And why am I doing this? So in general, they would stay away from the market and they would barbell. They would have a lot of cash and some real estate. And then it would become very inefficient over time because they didn't need such a big safety net. So now you have a middle bucket that's missing and over time it's costing you a lot. So the idea of thinking that you're buying insurance and if you need it instantly, you need it in the form of cash and bonds. But if you need it over time, then the market is your insurance because it compounds at a very healthy rate and you're giving up market return. So just the idea of rebalancing, sizing, there were other interesting cases, I think that were more human, where you had a husband and wife that had different risk profiles. And now you can look at each bucket. And the beauty about this is each investment not only has its bucket, but that bucket tells you what its purpose is. So you size it accordingly. The risk return is correct. So it was a simple framework. And I think one of the very early supporters of this was Markowitz himself. And he mentioned to me, he said, I've been trying to solve this problem for decades. These utility functions are very hard to solve based on large deviations. You just wrote down some heuristic answer. And I said, yes, I work for a firm. I got to get some answers by the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> the best I could do. But it stood up over time. So I'm grateful for that. What caused you to go from the high net worth facing side to the institutional side? So I wouldn't say that I wasn't only in the high net worth side. I was in the retail side of Merrill. So we saw all kinds of clients. It was 2006. And I didn't like the markets at all. The framework was quite popular. I was traveling all over the world. Merrill was under new leadership. And my kids were five years away from college. And I did the calculation that in five years, probably they'd just fire me because I was getting tired of the markets and the job. And my kids would be gone in college and no one would be talking to me. I thought 
it would be great if I just hung out with my kids for five years rather than do these crazy commutes. And somebody mentioned to me that the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, and I lived in Princeton, which is like 10 minutes away, was looking for a CIO, that they'd never had a CIO. And the chair of the investment committee was a famous guy called Jim Simons. And I'm a physicist by training. The Institute is where Albert Einstein and Kurt Gödel were faculty members, John von Neumann. I mean, this is a place that, you know, it's like you had me at hello. So I went and I said, let me go find out. So that was the genesis of the transition. What was it like meeting Jim the first time? The Institute, for those who don't know, the Institute is a few hundred acres next to Princeton University, completely independent, 30 faculty members for life, and then a couple of hundred visitors each year. 30 faculty members can do whatever they want for life. That's why you had Einstein there, you had Kurt Gödel, John von Neumann, you have Ed Witten today, you have a whole bunch of very distinguished people really pushing the edges of the frontier and brilliant people. So prior to Jim was a man called Leon Levy, who was the chair of the investment committee, brilliant investor, ran the portfolio himself pretty much, probably took risks that today under an institutional setting you could not take, worked out well. And I think the feeling always was that it was not a huge portfolio and with all of these billionaires, if something went wrong, they'd fix it. So Leon unfortunately died suddenly and they looked at the next who would take it over and of course Jim's. Jim who had been at the Institute, I think as a mathematician briefly, a long time early in his career, became chair of the investment committee. So finally I did get an interview with Jim and we spent an hour and Marty Leibovitz was there. So it was Marty Leibovitz and Jim interviewing me. I had this view that I was a managing director at Merrill. I had chaired the Asset Allocation Committee. I was a pretty interesting, serious person, a PhD in physics, had my paper beyond Markowitz, which was well thought of. And besides, they weren't paying. So, you know, it was sort of an interesting interview. And Jim spent an hour asking me very precise questions about how I do due diligence on a hedge fund. This is not what I had done, but I sort of gave him sort of my broad answers based on my vast experience. At the end of the interview, he looks at me and he says, and I'm thinking, this has gone really well. This is a good interview because I really enjoyed it. I just bonded with Jim and Marty Leibovitz, just a wonderful person, brilliant in his own right. I think this is going really well. It's gone well. At the end of the hour, Jim looks at me and he says, clearly, you know nothing about this job. I was sort of like (laughs) in a state of shock. And then he says but I like you. You're really smart. I'll give you the job. And I was just like, how do I react to this? This this, this is like unexpected. (laughs) So I looked at Jim and I said, Jim, I have a really nice job right now and I'm paid very well. The only reason I would take this job is because various aspects of my lifestyle and physics, but also that I'll get to work with you and people like you on the committee. So I want to make sure that I'm being taken seriously here, that you'll work closely with me because I think I will become a better investor. And Jim didn't miss a beat. He just looked at me and he says, of course I'll work closely with you. You don't know anything. (laughs) I'm going to have to teach you a lot. I think it's this bit of sense of humor that Jim has, but there's also a genuine sense of where he looks at this knowledge gap is missing, hence it's missing. It doesn't matter who he's talking to. And so in that sense, it's always been a wonderful experience working with Jim because you know exactly where you are. There's no BSing. And it's a joy. So Leon, for those who don't know, was a, Odyssey was a, an old school hedge fund guy, discretionary. Jim, clearly quant, very different. I'm curious what that portfolio that you walked in looked like with these two very different chairs that had been running it. That's an interesting question. So Jim is a low beta guy. The quant background is you don't have a lot of beta. The leverage won't allow you to have such high beta and get exposed to market fluctuations times leverage. So he had sort of reoriented the portfolio to lower beta hedge funds, but there were still pieces of the portfolio that were left over from Leon, especially in emerging markets that just were so very idiosyncratic binary bets that I think if Leon had been in charge, he would know when to move in or how to structure it. So there was some restructuring that I did And of course, we were just about to enter 2008. 
So how did you think about your framework, the safety portfolio, the index, the upside portfolio, aspirational portfolio in the context of IAS? So I think that you want to take one step back and say, remember, it's not just the three buckets, it's your goals. You always go back and you ask yourself, why do you have this money? What is the purpose? And in fact, that is what the interesting piece is. Jim had really thought that through for the Institute. The idea that the Institute has no students and therefore the only source of funding is the endowment. Now, think of it another way. If you're taking a lot of market risk and the market goes to hell and the Institute gets into deep trouble, the next Einstein doesn't come there or do their work because the S&P didn't return the right amount. It's the same thing with individuals. Your kids didn't go to college because the S&P 500 underperformed. There's something wrong with that. So the idea about having low beta is not to have low returns. It's simply saying, I recognize the returns of the market and the risk that comes with them. And one of the risks is volatility. And that volatility can be very painful for the institute because there's no other source of funding. While, on the other hand, for Yale or Princeton, they could just double their tuition. They still fill every seat. So the low beta portfolio was a challenge. It was the right thing to do for the institute. Therefore, also when markets are riding high, you don't end up spending too much because you're not changing your budget. So the second order effects are also very good. But it's also a challenge to hunt for alpha. It's take diversification seriously with correlations and with alpha. So how'd you go about doing that? We asked ourselves, what is it? Where do we have structural advantages? I'll use the word structural advantage and not unfair advantage. I do not like the phrase unfair advantages. We would like society to be fairer. But structurally, we were a small portfolio with a very good name and tremendous access. And so we could get into the best hedge funds and we didn't need a lot of capacity. So in fact, if we were patient, we could actually build a very good portfolio. Now, one of the things that I did notice is that we didn't have any venture. And I don't know why. It was just sort of an artifact. We had private equity, but not venture. And we had not a lot of it because, again, there was a focus on liquidity. And so, unlike Yale, that had pioneered a much larger percentage of private equity and real estate, we had but 10% or so. And I thought, venture is really hard to get into. We'll be able to get into it because of our name. And we don't need a lot of capacity. So even the best names will give us some amount of capacity. And venture has persistence. So this all comes back to human capital. It's can you find very good people who are doing something in the investing world that hasn't either been totally recognized or through capacity management, have managed to sustain it over long periods of time. And so I started off the simple way, which is I went after Sequoia and took some effort. And luckily, we got in and we built a nice position. What was the process of getting into Sequoia? I cannot tell you. I don't think that they would want <laughs> me to reveal that. And I would just say I was grateful that they gave us capacity. <laughs> the Institute is a wonderful, wonderful cause. And I think we do them proud and their returns have done us proud. But then the question was, and this is where I think I had some fun because I had a very interesting committee. And I very quickly determined Jim was setting the strategy. He was easy to work with as far as I was concerned. I was on the same page. Marty Liebowitz was there, and he was terrific in terms of understanding risk return, betas, stress betas. And then there was Nancy Peritzman, who just is a genius at emerging managers. And she sent me to Union Square Ventures, and she said, go talk to Fred Wilson. And I went and talked to Fred, and I really, really thought they were very good. This is 2006, so you know they have the 2004 fund, which is already doing well. But he's talking about something called networking. And that's interesting. Networking is an interesting concept, but who knows? It's like eyeballs in 99. And I'm very concerned about the bubble I've seen and gone through in 99, 2001. I don't see how this connects with the low beta, low risk strategy at the Institute. I do feel like I need to get return from somewhere. And venture is a persistent source of return. 
if you can get there with the right people. And so I had a long conversation with Fred about bubbles. And one of the things he seemed to be, his previous fund had gone through this entire cycle. So he was an experienced manager by now. His view was that when it's very high, it's okay to sell in the secondary market and give up some of the upside. And this is the opposite of some of the venture firms will say, you're not allowed to sell any of your stuff in the secondary market. He said they would be totally open to it as a way of managing risk. So that actually, a light bulb went off in my head. And I said, yes, not only will I take a chance, but I'll size up, I'll supersize this. And so I went back and instead of saying, all right, venture's gonna be 4% of our portfolio and then we'll have five managers. I said, we have 30 managers in our portfolio. Each one gets 3%. We'll get three venture managers. So I did Sequoia, I did Union Square Ventures, and then I looked for yet another slightly differentiated manager I found first round. So it was sort of West Coast, East Coast, Philadelphia at that point. It was large cap, mid cap, small cap, almost different themes. And it took about 10 or 12 years to really work out, but boy, did it work out. You have to say that you got lucky with a lot of thinking. So I'm scratching my head a little bit about how you can have 10% venture capital on a low beta portfolio. So how did you think about that? So when people talk about low beta, it's really, this is where you have to understand the institution, the committee, how people think and come up with a philosophy that's compatible. So as I said, when Jim talked about low beta, he defines beta precisely with the S&P 500. And what you're really saying is there's a retail risk for which there's a risk return framework. And I don't wanna take that kind of volatility for those kinds of returns. Now there are other kinds of betas. You can therefore start taking other kinds of betas and as long as you're transparent about it's not like you're creating a portfolio without risk. It's that you're trying to find different kinds of risks with different market cycles. And so somebody could argue that mathematically you've already raised your beta beyond point two. But another way of saying it is your S&P correlation is still that. You've taken some additional risks. Here are the kinds of risks you've taken. This is why you've taken. Are you getting compensated for them? So in your years at IAS, what would you say worked and what didn't work? I would say that what really worked was it was a small portfolio, so we could actually do very interesting things with it. We had a tremendous committee, and I was quite experienced before getting there. So that worked well. I really thought about who in my committee is good at what and then used them, collaborated with them for that particular purpose. And so it was quite unique to have Jim... Marty Leibowitz, Nancy Bertzman, and then, you know, a whole host of other distinguished people that I won't mention all the names. I think that what doesn't work is I'm not clear that the entire ecosystem of the Swenson model that had become so super institutionalized really works any longer. The fees are high, the fees are asymmetric, the LPGP risks are different, and I think we should explore different models. And I think Vanguard constantly puts us to shame. Huh. So let's dive into that a little bit. Vanguard puts us to shame and you don't think the endowment model will be as effective. What's the alternative? I don't think there's a silver bullet. I think people are doing the best they can. Everybody exists within a certain framework. And I think there's a nice article that both you and I have read by Graham Duncan, it's on infinite games. And I think you have to understand the games that everybody is playing, including the game that you are playing. And I mean that in a serious way, not necessarily that it's a game, but what are the rules of whatever you're doing? And where is value coming from? Where's the return coming from? Why are you at the table? Why are you being given permission to participate in the games? And in that sense, the fundamental value managers are playing a different game than the momentum managers. The quants are playing a different game than either of those two. Yale, for example, would never invest in quantitative managers, at least as far as I know. And I believe the answer was, Swenson said, I like to invest in things I know. My view was, give me any large cap stock, JP Morgan, Merrill Lynch, IBM, Microsoft, 
I still don't know what I'm investing in. To know is to be able to predict something, especially from physics. You're talking about multinationals, you're talking about the world. So you need to go back and ask yourself, what are the different ecosystems that coexist in the investing world? And which are the ones that you can participate in and which are the ones you should say no? It would be perfectly acceptable to say, I can't do emerging markets because my team structure is not set up to exploit it. I don't understand it, so I won't do it at all. Or I'll just index it. So I think that that's how you should go about it with a more open mind rather than just think that, gee, venture has persistence, private equity has a great IRR, hedge funds manage risk. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So how have you defined the various games you could play? So I go back to my framework. The first thing I always ask myself is what are the goals? Goals of the institution and try to be aware of governance. So people that manage you, how do you manage yourself? So what are acceptable risks and what are unacceptable risks? I think it's very important. And this is particularly true when you're trying to be big on alpha because alpha by definition almost is inducing you to take risks that are different from normal. And so there is a delicate balance between what you're allowed to do, for what will you be given forgiveness versus for what you need permission. As I said, you look at the portfolio and the first thing you want to ask yourself is, in really bad scenarios, what could happen? So as you chase return and you keep increasing the risk of your portfolio, at what point do you get to a point where there could be an unacceptable scenario in a situation that you just could not imagine? And so it's very easy to do that. You put everything in those three buckets and you say, if the market is down 80%, what does my liquidity situation look like? The piece that has been really useful, because I think the first two are really simple, you can think about safety, liquidity, and you can think about the market. And I include private equity and venture as part of just variations of the market. I think the fun part of late has been the aspirational bucket. So at Euclidean, we have a couple of interesting companies. We have a battery company that we've been incubating for a long time. It has very high energy density. We signed a deal with trucks to sort of do that. We have an air conditioning and cooling company that works on natural gas and can work on hydrogen. And so developing these companies can transform the world and also make a real difference in the portfolio. So this goes back to wealth creation. And the aspirational portfolio, I think, can move the needle as well as fulfill certain aspirational objectives that I think more and more people are looking to. Now, somewhere along the way, you wrote The Aspirational Investor, so a wonderful book that describes the framework. And in it, in particular, you talked about both Yale and Warren Buffett as it applies to your framework. And I'd love you to take me through both of those examples. Thank you for mentioning the book. It's a well-kept secret. <laughs> I actually released it the month I left Merrill. So there never was a book tour, and I think I sorely underestimated the power of the book to sell by itself. <laughs> but yes, it's an expansion on the work of Beyond Markowitz, and it really was written with the hope of sort of bringing a larger message that investing is about you or the institution, and you've got to get the portfolio to work for them. Now, 
the beauty of that framework, as I said, was a large deviation framework, so there are really three buckets, is that it turns out to be amazingly flexible in describing a variety of real-world situations. As I said, the put, the index, and the call. So now you go and you say, well, can it really describe the endowment model of Warren Buffett? And so this was like a fun exercise. So the endowment model came under a lot of criticism in 2008 because it was supposed to be diversified with private equity and venture and real estate and timber. And then comes 2008 and goes down just as much as the market does. And what's worse is now you have possible capital calls from private equity. Now, so I went back and I said, let me understand Swenson's framework through the lens of the wealth allocation framework. And I look at it and I say, okay, if I look at just Swenson's portfolio, that's actually very easy to analyze. It's the market portfolio. All this stuff about private equity and venture are just different risks in the market. I'm getting paid market risk. And none of these are aspirational investments. A hedge fund is not an aspirational investment for the LP. It is definitely an aspirational investment for a GP. <laughs> Similarly, private equity. It's definitely aspirational for the people who own the firm. That's a mathematically correct statement. It's not just a glib valuation. So when I look at Swenson's portfolio at TAL, there's not a lot of fixed income any longer because fixed income rates have been very low. There's a little bit of cash. So it's really a beta one portfolio, maybe slightly more than beta one, but let's call it beta one. And it's a market portfolio. So first glance, under the framework of the wealth allocation framework, no safety bucket, 100% market bucket, nothing in aspirational. Very boring. He's competing with Vanguard. Now, of course, it's a well-constructed market portfolio. And the beauty of it is it's, it's doing extremely well under normal circumstances. You have the best people in the world investing with different structures in different areas of industries, restructuring, and therefore you have a good market portfolio. Now you say, what is the test that this analysis is correct? Well, when the market crashes and really crashes and all correlations go to one, Marty Leibovitz's stress beta, beta goes to one, this portfolio will go down like the market, like the equity market. And sure enough, it does. So then the question really is, is this appropriate for Yale? Now, this is where smart people do the right thing. Yes, my conclusion is it's a great portfolio for Yale because what is Yale's safety bucket? It's students and tuition. It's educational business. Tomorrow, if they need some money, they'll raise tuition by 25%. And you think they're going to have trouble filling the seats? No. So it's fine for Yale because Yale already has a safety bucket. And the purpose of the endowment is to create long-term market return with duration of the long term. Is it appropriate, therefore, for another institution to copy Yale's endowment model? The answer is, if you're Princeton, yes. If you're some very small university in the middle of the country that's already having trouble getting students each year, no, because you're not going to be able to raise tuition by 50% or 25%, and you're going to be in a big hole. Now, the other piece was, doesn't Yale have an aspirational portfolio? Like, where do they go from here? And it occurred to me, <laughs> it's the alumni. It's the human capital. Gets them jobs for the next students, brings in donations, sphere of influence. And what's the goal of Yale? What are they trying to do? Now, if you write a list of the top three universities today, Yale's among them. I have a PhD at Yale, so I can be reasonably <laughs> bullish about Yale. And the objective would be like, 25 years from now, you want to write a list of the top three universities, you want Yale to be there. Now, if you have a strategy like that, you're in an arms race. You're in an arms race with Princeton. You're in an arms race with Stanford and Harvard. You're in an arms race with universities around the world that are emerging and will contend. So you need to invest heavily in each area. Unknown areas today, robotics, computers, bioengineering, AI, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, I think Swenson did it perfectly for Yale. Beta one market portfolio, safety net is the educational institution, aspirational is develop the alumni network and continue to foster excellence. So 
Now I'll switch to Warren Buffett. Now, <laughs> the joke is a little bit is when you're a capital allocator, if you get a very large number of true value investors who come in and say, I want to be the next Warren Buffett. Here's how I think about companies, moats, cash flows. And you realize that they don't have a chance of replicating Warren Buffett's track record. What is interesting about Warren Buffett's is that his portfolio sits among all three buckets. So he has this value-based, great companies, leaves the management alone, and so he has this wonderful market portfolio. Then he has this amazing reinsurance company sitting, when what is that? That's sort of a leverage play, if you like. It's taking the cash flows now and then paying out later based on probabilities. Of course, Ajit Jain runs it for him and runs it brilliantly, and they actually make a massive profit on it. Now, those excessive cash flows, he takes a bunch of them and he puts them in the first bucket for safety. Why? He wants to pay out in case his models are wrong. Plus, he keeps it for when the market crashes. When the market crashes, he invests at very low prices with some warrants. The only source of capital goes into the middle bucket. What happens over time is the middle bucket is actually leveraged. I think AQR or somebody did some work on it, which is like 1.6 or something like that. So you have a leveraged, very smart value portfolio middle bucket, and you have a big safety net sitting there on the left, and on the right you have your reinsurance business that's taking complex bets. Now, when the crash happens, does Warren go down as beta one? No, it's buying time for Warren. He has lots of cash, it's opportunity. So there are many different ways to invest. There are many different ways to make money. I think the question is to understand the game that's being played. Why, you all want to understand the ecosystem. And the question is, can you understand it deeply? And can you participate in it correctly? And if you can do that with more than one ecosystem, then you really have a diversified portfolio. So you're sitting in a particularly interesting seat today. You mentioned Euclidean, which is Jim's family office. And I'd love to hear how you've applied the framework to a single family office. Euclidean is the family office for Jim and Marilyn Simons. They signed the giving pledge. So there's a very large scientific foundation associated with it, the Simons Foundation, dedicated to basic math and science. They're also one of the biggest donors to autism research. And we have, I think, almost 200 scientists at the Simons Foundation and another 200 support staff doing amazing things. How does the brain work? How did life begin on Earth? What's the structure of the universe? So it's a wonderful place to be associated with. And of course, working with Jim, it's a privilege and an honor to be in that position. The thing with family offices is the money is made in a certain way due to certain expertise. In Jim's case, of course, it's the quant fund. In other family offices, it may be a trucking business, oil refinery, whatever. And I think you always want to ask yourself is, what's the right way to diversify? And the three buckets helps you understand that it's okay to have still a concentrated position in the original piece, as long as it's producing alpha and you understand it well. And then you institutionalize the rest of it. And in many ways, the endowment model works pretty well as a complement. I think people often forget liquidity, the fact that this institution must be able to survive the ups and downs. And I think this is where the low beta framework that Jim has always been a proponent of is very useful, in that when you have a high beta, you are getting good return. And therefore, when the markets are up, it's compounding in a great way. But then when the reverse happens, there are very painful changes that need to be made to the institution. So you want to ask yourself, what is your strategy? Is it that you want to grow reasonably every year, or do you want to go with the market and then retrench with the market? I do think from the diversity, equity, inclusion point of view, even for places like Princeton and Yale, when they retrench, it's really the lower end, the lowest rung of employees that end up getting retrenched. The tenured professors do not. And therefore, I think there is some great wisdom in not taking all the risks that the market has to offer. So how do you think about manager selection? In the end, everybody will tell you that selecting the right person 
is the most important piece. And that's true even in venture and startups because if you give money to the right people, if things are not going well, they will pivot. We've done this also, for example, in an area of, you know, if you look at drug discovery, you need to go after good scientists and good science. And then it's a process. And very often the first piece won't work, but then good scientists will sort of look at the data and pivot and they'll take a longer period of time, but then they'll get to the right answer. And often big pharma is not ready to take those chances. So there's a niche where you could actually go and work with good VC firms who are willing to have a slightly longer duration. So I think that with regard to hedge fund selection and manager selection, there are two components to it. It's getting to know the people and then what is the data telling you? I split it up because those qualities require different, <laughs> a different set of people, if you like. There are people on my team who enjoy meeting people. They enjoy the conversation. They ask good questions. They listen well. That's not me, by the way. <laughs> I'm not the guy you want to have a drink with in the bar every evening. And then I, I have a very good quant team, and the person who heads it has worked with me for more than 20 years. And he will pass the data, and he'll look at all kinds of correlations and convexities and embedded things and take into account market conditions. And a story will emerge from there. The data tells its own story. People tell their own stories. Bringing that together is the fun part. And if you can get some sort of persistence and some explanatory power, but with the right people, then you have a very good candidate. I will say, if the data is good and the people don't look good, forget about it. What are your signposts of what you constitute as a good person? I think that most people are capable of both good and bad behavior in their lifetime, and people will manifest that. So I don't think of any one person as good or bad. I'm asking myself, what are the circumstances that we have? Is this going to engender good behavior, or is this going to engender behavior that's not aligned with what I want, what I would define as bad behavior? And the way fees are structured, how they behave when things are going badly. Are they raising as much money as possible or are they being capacity constrained? It's actually not that hard. What is hard is that you're always looking at managers who have done well recently. That's why they're raising capital. So you have that behavioral bias, you want to get in, and you're willing to overlook things that in retrospect were always there really curious to ask you about the most modern intersection of investing and you're around all this data and science, which I guess is crypto. And just even if it's from a framework perspective, how do you think about something like that? So let's go back a few years, 2013 or so, I guess. I joined Merrill as global CIO, which is sort of a nice, interesting job after what I'd been in quasi-retirement at the Institute. And what are the two questions that I get asked very early in my career? One is, are interest rates going up? And the second is crypto, Bitcoin. Let me start with what I got right. <laughs> are interest rates going up? At that point, everybody on the street was convinced that interest rates were about to go up. And I thought about it quite deeply, not that I know that much about the bond market of how the Fed reacts. But it occurred to me that people were unnecessarily concerned about interest rates going up. And there were sort of two easy pieces. One is, if I borrowed a lot of money and I can set the interest rate, am I going to set it high or low? The second was, my clients were all mostly retail clients. They were not getting anything for their money in bonds. So interest rates going up was a good thing. So it's not something they should fear. So no panic should set in. The reason why the street was so concerned about interest rates going up was a lot of the research is around hedge funds and other institutions that are leveraged when you're making deals, investment banking. And so for them, it's a big issue whether the Fed is going to raise the short rate sharply because the overnight cost of leverage, they're going to have to delever. 
So my view was, nope, they're not going up anytime soon. And even if they do, they'll go up as slowly as they can. And you should take every rise as a good sign because finally we're going to get back to equilibrium and you're going to get paid for your bonds, which you should have in your portfolio. I got that completely right. <laughs> the street got it wrong. The second question was, what do you think of Bitcoin? And I had a very simple answer, which again, I had thought quite deeply about. I said, in order to have a currency, you need a military. Otherwise, everybody's going to counterfeit your currency and you need to enforce it in a court of law and you need to have a transparent court of law. And therefore, the US is sort of the right country with the strongest military and a democracy to have the reserve currency. There's a reason why after the Second World War, when Britain lost the Second World War, really, although they technically won it, but they lost the empire, the US won it. The US informed the British that the pound would no longer be the reserve currency, it would be the dollar. So what's the chance, if I go to the government and say, I'd like to set up a printing press in my backyard and print some money because I don't really think you guys are that good at managing deficits and, and managing my money, so I'll just do it myself. What's the chance I'm going to not end up in jail? So I got Bitcoin wrong. I don't know whether I got it totally wrong, but clearly the concept of being able to create a currency that would rival the dollar is somewhat surprising. And I think I have reconciled it in two ways. One is there appears to be an ability for two different systems to coexist because there are countries outside the U.S., there are the deep state and those who fear the deep, you know, there's a duality in the society. And so crypto appeals to a certain section of society and has staying power. The other is there's something genuinely interesting going on with Web3, DeFi, the distributed ledger. And with every genuine transformational technology, there comes a bubble. And I think it's going to have to play out. All right, Ashwin, I want to turn to a couple of fun closing questions. So let's start with what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I like hanging out with my wife and just, we read, watch TV, go see places. There's nothing special. I, I, I occasionally read a hard math book just to see if my brain still works, which normally I come to the conclusion it doesn't. And so that maybe that qualifies as an unusual activity. Sometimes I'll have an interesting conversation with Jim and he'll talk about a mathematical concept and I'll go look it up. I also love looking at original papers on anything. So on a technology, there's a lot of fun in going back to the original source. I'm also in a bunch of committees, Rockefeller University, National Academy of Sciences, Stony Brook Foundation, the Institute for Advanced Study. And I think each of these institutions represents something special. The boards are interesting. What's your biggest pet peeve? I think on a serious level, there is this view that society could be a lot better than it is. And we're in this very happy place where we're managing money. It's well paid. These are storied institutions. They benefit from society. But there's a lot that's wrong with society. And we should find good ways to talk about it. And we should find good ways to fix it. I think we've done it actively in terms of diversity, say, among our own team. I think that's always been an easy one. I've always said we have enough resources to hire where we wanted to hire. So we should have a very good diverse team. We should create a safe place to work. And we should create a place where you can make mistakes. If there is a big mistake, it's a mistake of the process. It's a mistake at the senior level. So there are little things I do on a daily basis that I think makes me feel that this is going in the right direction and worthwhile. Of course, as I said, the Simons Foundation does a tremendous amount of wonderful work. But I do think that I have a pet peeve with society, that it doesn't function correctly. How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? Oh, the asymmetry of terms between LPs and GPs. That's an easy one. That's just wrong. We should find a way to fix it. Right, which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? So clearly on the investment side is Jim. I mean, Jim Simons is just... And, you know, it's sort of funny because there is a sort of... You do overweight what famous people say or successful people say. So you've got to think, 
I think on the scientific side, I think in some funny ways, I had a very tough relationship with Benoit Mandelbrot, who really, I mean, he and I butted heads on a lot of stuff. I actually solved a problem that he posed and he was not happy about it. But I think he influenced the way I thought about life. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I think my parents are actually very interesting people. My dad was a printer and a publisher of a newspaper. He taught me chess, and we would just play chess. He was laid back. I think the best lesson he gave me was, you're not enjoying yourself enough. You're too intense. Just take it easy. It's funny because when he died, and he died a few years ago, the printing industry published a special edition to say the living legend of Indian printing has passed away. So he got a lot of success by just being a good person, being a nice person. And I, I remember that, that you don't have to drive over people in order to be successful. You can actually build a nice environment where people thrive and good things will happen. My mom is a brilliant and driven person. And she was a freelance journalist when I was growing up. And then she was the first journalist to enter Vietnam after the war. Went on jeep from Hanoi to Saigon. Was at the women's conference in Mexico. Was appointed Secretary of Health by the Prime Minister. So I grew up with a very interesting set of parents. And I think the one value, which was, almost seems funny, was money was never valued in our house. We didn't have a lot of it, but we had enough because they had good jobs, and it was the least interesting thing. And so it's almost funny that I am ended up in investing. And, and in many ways, making money has never been terribly interesting. It's solving a puzzle, doing something interesting, getting to a better place. All right, Ashwin, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think that really... It's fretting and worrying too much. Maybe when you're younger, you feel like you must do something. You have the weight of the world on your shoulders. Like now when people raise their kids, I tell them, lighten up for the kids. You know, it's all going to work out anyway. <laughs> of course, I didn't necessarily follow the same advice <laughs> with my kids when they were younger. But for me now, and I think a lot of it is when I start thinking about legacy a little bit, it's actually just about being a good person being generous in spirit. It's like, how do you grow? How do you stay calm? How do you observe the universe? And how do you participate in a way that makes it better? These are just things that were not on my radar screen when I was 25 or 30, <laughs> when I was like, I was wanted to do stuff. And maybe there's a life cycle to it. I don't know. Ashwin, thanks so much for taking the time. I know this is a long time coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. 